0: All right, so this is session two of the college street new members class and so this week we're talking about what we believe and we're basically going to go over our um sort of creedal and confessional statements um we'll talk probably next week about um or next session about um our uh a covenantal statement which is as opposed to saying what we believe it's basically how we agree to live amongst each other um so I guess maybe the first question is is just to sort of see where people are coming from. So, how many of you have come from churches that had a confessional statement? Anybody? Couple. Okay. What what was the confessional statement that they used? Uh, well, we we did a prayer of um, kind of like a sinner's prayer type thing for confessional time that we recite every uh, Sunday that so wasn't exactly a confessional statement okay yeah so yeah a diff- distinction between something like a confessional time in a service like we're talk like we have a confessional time okay. right where we talk about confessing our sins and stuff like that but i mean in terms of confessional meaning you the church used a confession of faith um as as a as their standard of belief as their stated standard of belief Okay, all right, yep, so that's, yeah, so certainly some churches will use the Apostles' Creed, uh, that was probably in the Methodist Church, yeah. yep, hmm. Um, um, yeah, the Apostles' Creed, as at, um, they would change it every once in a while depending on the church calendar mm-hmm. to a different confession, but most weeks it was. Yeah. Okay. New uh, yeah. So obviously there, are, we, we have the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Um, uh, oftentimes Presbyterian churches will use, um, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, uh, Dutch Reformed churches will use the Heidelberg Catechism or the Heidelberg Confession of Faith. Um, so, so there's a lot of different ones out there. Um, uh, but a lot of times, the, the confessional statement of churches oftentimes in American evangelicalism is not well stated. Um, it's not, it's something that, that maybe exists in, you know, the documents like the bylaws that nobody ever looks at or whatever. Um, but I think the case is, is that the more and more we have come into a time where even some of the foundational ideas that undergird, um, Protestant evangelical thought, um, are up for grabs. You know, we've talked about in, in our current culture, how the word evangelical is almost unhelpful as a descriptor because it can mean so many different things. Um, there's, there's been, at least in some sectors of the church, a a return to an idea of saying, Hey, we need to be a more confessional church. We need to have, um, our statement of belief, um, more upfront, um, and, and more centered on. And so, um, so so obviously, first off, as protestants um we don't think that a creed or a confession are inspired or authoritative in and of themselves okay they they don't carry the same um uh, authority that the scriptures um uh carry you know, obviously from and that's different from say a Roman Catholic context where where you are laying the tradition of the church on sometimes. More even ground with the scriptures and things like that. But, um, but from, from our perspective, any authority that, that the, the creeds or confessions have is a reflection of the authority that they find in the scriptures. Okay. So they are authoritative to the extent that they are saying the same thing that the, the, um, uh, scripture is saying and, and not beyond that. Uh, there have been a lot of traditions, um, certainly Baptist traditions that have moved away from, from creedal and confessional statements. That's for a lot of different reasons, but, but one of them is because of sort of in the early 1900s as, as the fundamentalist movement came to prominence as a reaction against the, the liberalization of the mainline denominations. All those mainline denominations used creeds and confessions as a regular part of their worship, and so it was almost as if the Baptists were saying, "Well, those creeds and confessions are a symptom of their liberalism, and so we're not going to use that kind of stuff anymore. We're just going to go with the Bible." And so, which I think was throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but but you can at least see maybe a, a reason why many Baptist churches sort of had this new little motto that was "no creed but the Bible." And so, you've seen that in over the the, the decades, um, particularly in the in the twentieth century. Um, but but one of the reasons why a creed is is or or a, a confession is useful is because the Bible is a big book, okay. And while we believe that the whole thing is inspired and authoritative, um, we also believe that certain portions of Scripture are much more central to the message of Scripture, particularly to the message of the Gospel. And so you know the not all um, the the Book of Esther uh, is not as significant as the Book of Romans um, to, to the message of the Bible. And so it still is important. It still is, uh, the the word of God. It still has things to teach us. It still has a place in the grand narrative of scripture, but, um, but we recognize that there are some ideas and some places that are more significant, um, in the message of the scriptures. And so, um, creeds and, and, and confessions have historically been used, As a opportunity one to concisely state what we believe, um, the central tenets of the faith, and to use as a teaching tool to sort of quickly bring um, new believers up to speed on the core core doctrines of the faith. And so, basically, the purpose of this session is that we would get a clear. Idea of the beliefs of this congregation, so that you can more clearly discern whether you would like to unite yourselves to our our church, or whether it would be wise for you to look somewhere else. Okay, and that's not to say, yeah, we're trying to run people off, but it is to say, if if uh, if we fundamentally disagree on on significant areas of the faith, then then it's probably um, this may or may not be where you want to end up um now again we we would be excited to have anybody here to learn and 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 if people are willing to say well i'm not sure if i agree with that but i am willing to to stay and and listen and and see if um i can be convinced of these things then then obviously that's that's great um but uh but that may not be the case so um but that's kind of what we're we're shooting for today and so i kind of uh, we're we're going to start off with this sort of image right here okay and so this is sort of just an idea of didn't come across in your in your uh um uh, handout as well because of the the coloring or whatever but so this is sort of a something that you could use as a idea of visualizing the theology of our church right so it's sort of these ideas of concentric circles that that keep on zooming in that we fall within uh what we would call the orthodox belief of the church but we would we would then refine that to say we would be part of a Protestant tradition in that church, a reformed tradition in that church, an evangelical tradition within that, a Baptist tradition, and then and then a Southern Baptist. And you might even, and I've got something in here about the idea of a congregationalist. Um, but I would say that you could sort of throw that in with a kind of Baptist or or something like that. And so, or even a kind of Southern Baptist. So, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, and so so, it is right to say that we are all of those things. Um, we are all of these um, different categories of church um, and our creedal and confessional statements reflect the the fact that we are part of these different traditions so um, again, in a general sense um, the the Nicene Creed, which is what we use as our creedal statement um, would put us in the Orthodox camp, whereas the New Hampshire Baptist confession would put us in a broadly Protestant, reformed evangelical and Baptist tradition of the church. And then obviously the Southern Baptist is a little more refined. The Southern Baptist convention didn't quite exist, I believe at the time of the the writing of the New Hampshire Baptist confession. Um, but, but most of the, the, the distinctives of being a Southern Baptist as opposed to just a Baptist have to do with emphases and entities, um, probably more than specific doctrinal beliefs. Um, and so we'll kind of talk about that when we get to it in a second. So, um, so a couple of, uh, things off the top. So again, the Nicene Creed, um, is our, uh, primary creedal statement, which places us in agreement with the historic teaching of the church and is recognized as the primary creedal statement for the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Church, the Church of the East, and Protestant churches, okay? And so what we find is this, uh, the Nicene Creed is about as agreed upon as any document in the church, Okay. Um, there have been more traditions who have affirmed the Nicene Creed than any other. And honestly, that's what the intention of using it is, is to say we are talking about the most broad description of Christianity. OK, um, so, for example, there would be many of those groups that we just listed that we would disagree on major issues um, in terms of things like the nature of salvation. Um, uh, Uh, The nature of the Bible and its authority and things like that, we would have big differences, but the Nicene Creed steps a little further back to talk about even in some cases more fundamental um, things and so. um you could you, you we could talk about the ideas of say monotheistic trinitarianism um uh the the historicity of the events of of the new testament of the life of jesus and his miracles and his death and resurrection um those are sort of like core ideas at the beginning of christianity probably in some cases so core that we don't even think about them um uh that much but But the Nicene Creed affirms those things and, and affirms it along with all these different traditions um, of the church. Now, a lot of people would say, well, cool, why don't you use the Apostles' Creed? Um, because the Apostles' Creed is typically um, thought to be of, of earlier origin than the uh, Nicene Creed. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why we have chosen to primarily use the Nicene Creed instead of the Apostles' Creed. Um, the first would be is that the Nicene Creed is more... Uh, it represents the Trinitarian understanding of God in a more clear way than the Apostles' Creed does. Okay, um, and that's because there was a lot of stuff that went on discussing the an understanding of the Trinity and who Jesus was, leading up to the Council of Nicaea and, and the Nicene Creed. Okay, and so so we think that Trinitarianism is central to the faith. It is one of the primary uh, revelations of Christianity. And so um there there have been movements within the church in the last hundred years to say, no, 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 monotheism is is the big reveal of Christianity. And the answer is no, it is not. There's there's other monotheistic faiths that are false faiths in the world. But Trinitarianism is is not something that you that has been um, affirmed by other faiths or whatever. And so, so anyway, the Nicene Creed is, is, is more Trinitarian than the Apostles Creed. Um, two, there's this thing in the Apostles Creed called the Descent Clause. And so if you don't know what the uh, descent, clause is, um, it has his, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So it has historically caused, um, a little bit of confusion has been interpreted in different ways that are both potentially biblical and less than biblical and these different things, um, to the extent that some people uh, remove it from the creed and different things like that. Well, you bypass that by using the Nicene Creed because interestingly, the Nicene Creed does not have the descent clause in it although it is obvious that the Nicene Creed was at least in form based off the Apostles' Creed. And so um, to be honest, I've never gotten a, a great answer as to why that is, but at, to, I feel like it sort of indicates that maybe the Nicene fathers were at least saying this may not be an idea that we want to put in the foundational ideas document. Um, right. Um, and so, so by using the Nicene Creed, you, you eliminate the, the confusion that comes along with that, but keeping the, Basic form of everything else in the Apostles' Creed, um, and the third thing is, and this is another historical curiosity or whatever, the Apostles' Creed has never been affirmed by the Church as a whole in terms of an ecumenical council. Um, so, so. For example, to this day currently, the Eastern Orthodox Church does not and has never used the Apostles' Creed. It does not recognize it as, as as any sort of official creed of the church because the church has never gotten together and had a council about it. They have gotten together and had a council about the Nicene Creed, so that is the standard that they use. Um and so again, I think it when a lot of times what we're trying to do when we talk about the Nicene Creed is we're trying to say we want to identify ourselves with the the continuing stream of historic Christianity from the first century and the Nicene Creed actually does that better than the Apostles Creed does, I think, um, and so that's that's part of the reason why we use it. And so the, the text of the, the Nicene Creed is one that we read about every three or four weeks here at the church. Um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with his Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Right. You got to memorize it, right? Um, So, so again, um, that would be our creedal statement. And um, that puts us, puts us firmly within the Orthodox tradition of all of uh, Christianity. Um, when we come to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, there's a lot of overlap that happens. So, um, so there are other places in the New Hampshire Confession that would also reaffirm that um, that orthodoxy, particularly in in sections like Section Two and Section Three of the New Hampshire Confession. So they talk about um, of the one true God and and of the fall of man. Um, and so so we've got you've got there on your on your tables, you've got a, a big bundle of papers um, that has the has the uh New Hampshire Baptist confession towards the end of it. And so we can um, it will probably be a little much for for the time we've got today to sort of go through and read every section. Um, But that's obviously something that you should do. Um, you should go through these things and, and, and we try to help you with that by reciting them each week and, and doing a section each week during our service, but, but you should go through and, and read through and think through, um, the comments that are made here. Um, but, but again, what we're going to try to do it right now is, is just point to a couple of places where, um, we, um, how these different sections place us within these traditions of the church. So, um, like we said, of, of the true God uh, is defined by um, uh, talking about who who Yahweh is, um, uh, the Maker and Supreme Ruler of heaven. Um, we we augment our passage just a little bit um, because in the original creed it uses the word Jehovah. Um, we don't use the word Jehovah. We use the word Yahweh. Um, Jehovah is an, it's a, it's a, it's a stand in word for the word Yahweh for, for people in the, in traditions that believe that it would be wrong somehow to say the name of God. Um, my belief is that God told us what his name is because he wanted us to know his name. Um, and so as long as we are using that in a right and and god honoring way there's not a there's not a problem with us um using that that name and so so that's one little thing that we've we've augmented in the in the confession um Various sections, and again, there's a lot of overlap again in the sections. So all of the sections have a good bit of content in them, and some of them would point us in a Protestant direction, and some of them would point us in a particularly evangelical direction, or a particularly Orthodox direction, or a particularly Baptist direction. And so we're sort of we're going over them in generalities, but um, but when we look to the Protestant tradition, um, section four on the way of salvation talks about these ideas of. Um, salvation being holy of grace, um, talking about a full atonement being made for our sins. Um, section six on the freeness of salvation, uh, we talk about regeneration, um, in, in, um, section seven and how through regeneration, uh, that, that naturally should result in, in a changed life and, and being a different person. Um, we talk about the idea of the harmony of the law and the gospel, um, which is a, which is an idea that different churches have understood differently throughout history, particularly say, as opposed to the Lutheran understanding of, of, um, law and gospel and stuff. Um, obviously when we hit a section like on baptism and the Lord's supper, um, those connect us into the Protestant tradition, but they also we have specific views, particularly of baptism as as uh, Baptists. And so that places us in the, the Baptist tradition. Um, there is the idea under the Christian Sabbath of, of explaining what we do and don't do on Sunday. We have also augmented our New Hampshire confession there, too, um, because there's a line in the New Hampshire confession that makes a comment where it basically says, um it would lean towards sabbatarianism first off which is a strict observance of the sabbath and and no work um uh, provisions and things like that there but it also makes a, a sort of an odd comment about the fact that we should um we should abstain from sinful pleasures on the sabbath and and i was like I I think we should abstain from those all the time, right? And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting little word. I've not done enough studying to, to find out why that was in the original, that, that wording. But, uh, uh, anyway, um, so. But there is a, that, that, that connects us to a Protestant tradition at, at a number of places in, in the text. It also connects us to an evangelical um, understanding of things. And so, uh, there would be a lot of overlap between evangelicalism, um, as a historic thing, um, and, and Protestantism. In fact, to the extent that, that many, um, let's say Puritan type, um, Theologians and stuff would certainly, they would even call the Protestant tradition the evangelical tradition, right? Because they see it as a getting back to the even the evangel, right? The gospel. Um, and so they would say, man, the, the, the evangelical position is the Protestant position, but there are some emphases from modern evangelicalism or, or, 18th century evangelicalism that would be maybe not something that you would find in every tradition of of Protestantism. So typically we define, and this is in your handout too, we define evangelicalism according to four characteristics. And that would be that it is bibliocentric. Okay. So has the Bible as its center, which generally Protestants would agree with. Um, It is cross-centered, which again, generally uh Protestants would agree with, but then it is also, uh, Evangelicalism is conversion centric, okay, and so it is the idea that um, there is a n- necessary uh, born again experience, a personal um, change of heart, and coming to faith that has to take place, which probably not every Protestant tradition would would talk about in the same way. And then, and then a last piece would be the idea of they call it activism, which obviously in our modern day context has a whole different connotation to it but the idea that saying of saying in the evangelical tradition salvation works itself out by you doing good in the world and whether that is missions whether that is humanitarian and philanthropic causes or something like that something that you know probably would notice if you read some church history is that after the Great Awakening, there's this huge, um, rise in, in different kinds of ministries, like ministry to the poor, uh, ministry to, uh, try to get children out of the, the factories and the work world, um, trying to educate children, trying to get, um, safe working conditions for people, trying to, uh, reduce the amount of drunkenness and alcoholism that was found in poor communities, you know, essentially like, anti-drug, uh, you know, um, things and stuff like that. And so there is this huge push, not only that, but also obviously the missions movement that comes roughly 60 or 80 years after the great awakening. And so the idea that our faith should be acted out in certain ways. Okay. Which again, would probably be an emphasis that maybe not all Protestant traditions would, would point to. And certainly some would probably not point to at all. Um, uh, there are other sections, um, particularly the one of, on baptism and the Lord's Supper and on, um, maybe some like civil government, um, where we talk about specifically Baptist issues. And so two of those, um, if you think about things that, that make Baptists Baptist, um, ob- the obvious one, which is in the name is that we believe in a particular kind of baptism. We believe in credo. Um, baptism as a pay, opposed to pedo baptism. Um, ch- we, we believe in belief baptism as opposed to child baptism. Um, uh, baptism is for professing believers in Jesus Christ. And then, uh, also typically Baptists believe that baptism is by immersion as opposed to sprinkling or, or pouring or any of the other, um, forms of that, that we have seen throughout the church. Right. Yeah. So the word. Baptizo in the Greek means to immerse in water. Um, uh, the, The difficulty with the word is that the process of immersing in water therefore becomes a euphemism for cleansing, too, which then people go, well, cool, if we're talking about cleansing, then can't you do that by pouring and all these things like that? There's a whole argument to it, but I, but I think that's right, is that baptizo means to immerse. Um, and so, so that is probably, that is the biblical picture. Okay. Not to mention the symbolism of it, of, of going under the water and essentially dying with Christ and being raised to, to life. Those are the same. That's, there's a picture there. Um, but baptism is obviously part of what makes us unique. Um, and then historically, um, essentially something like, uh, uh, religious liberty has been a Key Baptist emphasis as opposed to other evangelical and Protestant traditions. Um, and part of that is because Baptists tend to, throughout history, not be the official religion of a group, right? Um, you know, the, the, the Scots have got Presbyterianism and the English have got Anglicanism and, and, uh, you know, the, the Germany has Lutheranism. There were these, um, magisterial groups, um, they talk about the magisterial reformers, uh, the reformers who worked through the official systems of their nations, and usually that included having an official state church and things like that. Baptists have always been on the outside of that. Uh, there's not been many places in the history of the world where Baptists were the official religion of anything, Okay. Uh, that's right. <laughs> places like that, right? Um, now there are some interesting places. For example, Rhode Island. Rhode Island was a place that was heavily influenced by Baptist belief, but it was not officially Baptist. It wasn't a situation where they were like, "Hey, only Baptists are allowed here." In fact, it was formed because Baptists weren't allowed in other places, and so it was started um, as a state because because people were looking for religious freedom, uh, many of whom were Baptists, and so. Um, uh, yeah, there, so not, yeah, there's not, there's not a whole lot of Baptist connection with uh, Rhode Island probably anymore. But again, interestingly, places like Brown University, which are, which is in Rhode Island, uh, was historically Baptist. It was a Baptist institution in its founding. Um, now, much like all of the Ivy League schools, it's not particularly connected to Christianity at all, but, but its heritage is. So, um, but those would be two things that I, we center on as, as, as Baptist evangelical protestant orthodox or reformed orthodox christians right uh we would be in that camp of saying um, we think that religious liberty is a significant thing um and while lots of people would agree with us baptists have had have had un, a unique voice um in that, is that specifically in Baptist? um it has typically been most Baptists because, again, most Baptists in different places have had that reputation. So, for example, um, in in England, um, the early Baptist churches oftentimes were non-sanctioned, right? And so you could be arrested and put in prison for being a Baptist. It's the reason why some Baptists left England and started congregations on the continent in places like the Netherlands, which were much more open to anything and hands off in, in their traditions. Um, the interplay of, of Baptist churches and belief across the English channel is really what ends up birthing the Baptist faith as a, as an official kind of denomination and kind of church. And then those churches start coming over, um, and, and, and coming to the, to the new world or whatever. So, um, Um, I'm realizing that my slide on Reformed Church is not on there. Um, And so I don't know what I did. I must have accidentally bumped that one somehow. Um, But obviously, we would say that the... the New Hampshire Baptist confession also places us within the broadly reformed camp. Okay. Um, and you, you, so we kind of sometimes use the phrase jokingly, the reformed ish camp. Um, it is not, it does not place us in a hardcore reformed camp. Um, there are other Baptist confessions that would more solidly do that. So there's one called the second London confession that would put us more solidly in the reformed camp. Um, Essentially the New Hampshire confession was for the, uh, it was a confession that was meant to allow, uh, a little more disagreement among Baptists on those issues. Okay. And so I appreciate that because I would consider myself when we talk about, for one, the issue is to say, is this something that should divide a congregation at a certain level? Okay. And so people are saying, no, if you can agree with what's here in the New Hampshire that is confession. Then even if we disagree on its application in certain ways, this should be enough for us to be unified as a congregation, which obviously I agree with. Um, but, but as someone who would, would sort of jokingly describe themselves as something like a four and a half point Calvinist, um, uh, then, then I appreciate that because what it does is it affirms many of the same concepts that, that we would know from the, from Dortian Christianity. Dortian theory of salv, understanding of salvation um which which is where we get the five points of calvinism from um it would affirm things like uh total depravity it would concern approve uh, of unconditional election and perseverance of the saints and even irresistible grace in general it would be less descriptive on limited atonement it would basically take that issue and say we're not going to really comment um, we agree that Christ's death is all sufficient and we agree that only the elect will be saved, but how that is applied and where the, where these things come together, we're going to leave open so as to not cause division on an issue that we don't think is, is primary to the unity of the church. Um, and so, and so that kind of brings us finally um, uh, we could, we could, we could, tie that in with the idea of congregationalism as well. Um, congregationalism is not unique to Baptist churches, but it is typically the way most Baptist churches work. And that is to say that authority under Christ um, is, uh, is found in the gathered body of believers. Okay. As opposed to the elders, uh, the bishop, the session, the any of those institutions that other churches have brought. And you might say, well, Ash, doesn't, doesn't the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, we went through this section, it talks about how elders and deacons are the only official representatives of the church. Are we not elder-led? And the answer is we are. We would, and, and a way to talk about it would be that we are elder-led and congregationally ruled, okay? And so that is to say, at the end of the day, the congregation is responsible for its own life, okay? That's what would happen, right? The congregation could, through a process, um, vote out its own elders, right? Um, if, if they, for some reason, fell into sin or had the, the congregation felt for some reason that they did, they, they called no faith, essentially, on, on the, the elders, that would be a process, okay? Because the elder, the, the congregation has to live under the, uh, uh, I mean, they make these ultimate decisions in some ways. So then you say, well, then cool. What's an elder doing then? And the, and the answer is the elder is leading. Um, the elder is somebody who, or the elders is, are the people that the congregation have entrusted with leadership in the church. And so there are a lot of similarities. And honestly, our American government gets some of these ideas from Christianity. Okay. The idea that we have a Republican government. Um, we invest authority in these people, but they lead by the consent of, of, of the governed. Right. And so our representatives, we expect them to lead and do the work of, of leading our country, but they do that by our, um, uh, by our consent and vote. Right. And so essentially we have a similar process there. Okay. Um, uh, because, and, and, and the, ethos, the, the, the biblical warrant for that would be the fact that in most cases, when you read in the Bible, when there's an issue of discipline or something like that, it is the congregation that is called to do something about it, not the elders, right? They, they, they don't appeal to the elders to be the ones who make the decisions. They appeal to the people, um, to be the ones who, to, who recognize things and make decisions. And I would argue you can, you can trace a theme of that all the way back to the, to the, book of Genesis and the beginning of the church. And to say that this, uh, this um, stewardship that Adam and Eve even have over creation is a kind of, of um, congregationalism. It is to say that all people are invested with these responsibilities in the church. Um, and that while there are specific jobs and roles for elders and deacons, that the the authority rests on the church at the end of the day. Um I don't have a I don't have a slide for for the Southern Baptist connection particularly but essentially what I would say is the main things that tie us to Southern Baptist life um and dis- and the, as as distinctive would be our institutions largely. And so that would be a um our mission boards, um the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board, uh b our seminaries um and so that would include um Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern, Southwestern, New Orleans, Midwestern and Golden Gate Seminaries. And so as institutions that are training um uh, uh Baptist leaders um and then the third uh would probably be something um uh, or or would be institutions or entities like um the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And so um entities that are that are working in the realms of religious liberty and focusing on those in, in connection with religious freedom and governmental work and things like that. There could be other entities too. um, the, the Lifeway and publishing and things like that would certainly be things that we were connected to in different ways. Um, but, but I think the big ones would be having an entity that's job is to affirm, um, the religious liberty emphasis that we have as as Baptists, and from the more evangelical side, a place that emphasizes the mission, missional calling of the church, both to our own nation and to the world. And so, if you don't know anything about the the International Mission Board, uh, it's the largest mission sending agency in the world. We have more missionaries on the field than, than any other uh, entity. And man, it used to be the case and it may still be the case. I've not looked at the numbers recently, <clears throat> but we kind of, we pretty much had more on the field than all the other ones combined um, kind of deal. Um, at one point within the last 10 years, there were somewhere in the range of 7,500 staff missionaries um, uh placed by Southern Baptist uh cooperative program and, and, and that included, I guess, international missionaries and North American board missionaries. So, so that would just be a central, um, thing to, and something that sometimes when, when people talk about, ah, you know, is, is there, would there be value in not being a part of the Southern Baptist convention or, or is there, would there be a reason to disconnect from it? And and certainly you could, you know, there's always difficulties and strife and things and reasons that someone might not want to be associated with it, but, Um, currently my belief is that the, the emphases and the traditions and the institutions are of far more value than the, the typical difficulties that come with being a part of any denomination. And so, um. Are we a part of the association? And so, so then we have our, our mother church is a part of the Chilhowee Baptist Association. Um, and, um, we have not talked a whole lot about that in terms of, um, the future of our congregation as an autonomous body. Um, we, we, that would be a discussion that we will probably have whether or not how do I, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, but how, how the connection to that will go. Um, and so, uh, and again, by the same token, typically um, a connection to Baptist associations puts you in connection with some some helpful tools, both for missions, for um, resources in terms of uh, Sunday school and training and things like that, um, gives us access to things like Camp Tipton and things, and so some local, very local things. So, um, but honestly, we have not dealt with that yet Um, we've not that has not been an emphasis yet so um, so questions comments concerns I'm sorry apparently I was that slide up a minute ago did I completely cut it off before y'all saw it Entity, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. Robin and Holman um publishing company and then Lifeway as a um, yeah. And there are other, you know, used to be Sunday school curriculums and things like that. They're connected to each other. They were sort of the storefront of, you know, uh, and there are other entities, too. There's the uh, annuity board, which is basically sort of the insurance and investment wing of the of the SBC that deals with things like insurance and and retirement and things like that. There are other entities, but but maybe less central to the mission of the church um as opposed to the sort of daily function of the church so um yeah yeah, yeah so so the the word there are um there's the word that is basically presbyteros um and the word that is episcopos Okay. And essentially what ends up happening is you, one of those words, the bishop word is, is the episcopos word. And it's, and it's basically the idea of an overseer. Okay. So then certain denominations throughout the history of the church have made a distinction between the role of the episcopos and the presbyteros, which the presbyteros would be the elder. And so they have said there are two different roles there. There is an overseeing role and then there is a, a pastor elder role that is more local. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am of the opinion, um, that those words are used interchangeably in the, in the Bible, that elders are overseers and overseers are elders, um, that we don't have bishops. Um, but obviously that has been disagreed upon, um, in the history of the church. So, um, and there's obviously practical things to that too. And, and, uh, all kinds of ways of, of, uh, ecclesiology that have worked themselves out through the history of the church in various ways. But, but that's the, that's the origin. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So that is part of that Baptist identity is typically Baptist. And you know, what I think, did I have that on a slide or did I leave it off? Um, it's in your it's it's not on the slide, but it's in your it's in your uh, handout is the idea of saying the autonomy of the local congregation. And so at the end of the day, the authority of the church, uh, its ultimate authority is the congregation. There's no higher authority for a congregation than the congregation itself. And so it does not appeal to a higher leadership um now obviously it could in in so we as baptists we would often have associations as opposed to uh, presbyteries or dioceses or things like that right and so um sometimes baptist churches will cooperate and give guidance and help in certain situations so let's say there's a congregation and they have a problem with an elder and there's a vote and it's 50-50 and there's no, like, you know, obviously there's a mess here that's got to be dealt with, but the church can't seem to figure it out, then as Baptists would often appeal to sister churches to come in as mediators and arbiters of things to help with that situation. But at the end of the day, they wouldn't have any authority um, over those. Um, it, the association can kick out a church because, again, the the association is a yeah, it's a voluntary um, uh, thing. Now they they can have their own standards. Yeah, gosh, shut up. <laughs> 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 that was Jane. <just>, <laughs> <laughs> but those <true>. churches <laughs> conversationally led, right. so if the conversation primarily is located, whatever their yeah, whatever sin their elder is living. Right. In. Yeah. Yeah, they. The, the idea would be they still are. They still have to make a decision. That congregation has to be the one that decides on the issue. Um, so, by the same token, the Southern Baptist Convention um, has no authority over its churches. Um, if my church tomorrow starts doing something weird. All they can do is kick us out of the association yeah, the convention, but they can't come in and censure. They can't come in and fire anybody. They can't come in and they don't have any authority, which which has been an interesting thing to play out in our denomination over the last few years that there as there have been scandals and things like that, because in hierarchical churches. If let's say there's there's a uh, you know, we've we've had all these issues with um, sexual abuse scandals in the church. Right. Well, in a hierarchical church, if there's a sexual abuse scandal at, at a, in a congregation, then theoretically the bishop should know about that and the whoever the next step up is should know about that. And so essentially there are various levels of people who should have done something. and And if they didn't, there are probably various levels of cover up. Right. Well, with the Baptist church, that's not the case. Um, if, if a church in California has an abuse scandal that they cover up, there's not really any way for any other Baptist church in the country to have any necessary knowledge or ability to do anything about it. Right. And so that's part of the, um, uniqueness of, of, of Southern Baptist ecclesiology. So, and yeah, yeah. So what's the present? Yeah, so again, there is a, there is a, uh, a convention, an association that is partnering on things, right? So for example, all of our entities are functionally, um, uh, cooperations. They are co-ops. Right. So um, the reason why we can fund a seminary or fund a missions agency or fund a whatever is because all the churches get together and say it'd be really great to have a mission agency. But we can't afford one as an autonomous congregation. But if we all give a little money, then then we can have a mission sending organization. So the president of the denomination is connected to the running of the denomination and and its entities. And obviously each one of those entities have their own presidents. There's an executive board that is responsible for, you know, I mean, all the things that a typical board would, would be about, you know, allocation of funds and, and election of people and all these different things like that. Right. And so, so it's almost like the, the Southern Baptist convention as an entity sits outside and does is doing its own thing while these churches exist in its orbit or so whatever. Does it us at all? The is? Um not officially. It, it it only affects us as much as we want to be affected by it, right? So if if somebody is made a president and he says, I've got this new initiative and I want everybody to do this, we can get on board with that initiative or we can say so not, no thanks. Yeah, no thanks. Um, which is what usually happens. It's it's I mean to me that's such a positive to it because yeah. And you and yeah. You don't necessarily go to a church. Knowing exactly where they stand on Yeah. The real issue yeah. Yeah. And there's I mean there there there's certainly great things about it, you know, when you look around it at denominations that are currently struggling because of issues of, you know, LGBTQ stuff and and different things like that, you go part of the problem in many of those denominations is that you have a hierarchy that is, is largely liberal, um, on those issues or progressive or however you want to define them. And, and the congregations are maybe less so. And so then that's a problem. Um, the Southern Baptist convention had that problem 30 years ago, um, or 40 years ago. And, it's it's entity leaders were tending towards the liberal side, whereas its congregations were tending towards um, a, a conservative side. And basically what happened is, is the conservatives created a grassroots movement to remove those leaders from their positions and install conservative leaders. And it worked. Um, but that's because, again, at a very real level, at the end of the day, even as a denomination, we are a congregational denomination, sort of. At the end of the day, uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention is nominated and elected by messengers from the Southern Baptist churches. So that means each church sends some people to convention, and those people vote. And if those people vote out a guy, then he's out. And if those people vote in a guy, then he's in. Um, there is not a council you know, it's not like the Catholic church where you have these cardinals who, regardless of what the people think, they are making decisions behind the scenes and electing a pope or whatever else like that. So even our denomination is congregational in a sense. Um, but once those people are in their position, then they have a certain amount of leadership that they are allowed to perform until their, their time of service is up. Um, cool well so what i would encourage you to do is and this is part of the the membership interview is to talk about the um when when we talk to you during the membership interview it is to say have you have you looked through the the confessional and creedal statements um are you in agreement with them um in general again um i think there is a certain amount of 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 a little bit of wiggle room in those things there is not a there is not a point where you say uh, you have to think about these things exactly the way I think about them. Um, uh, that's not exactly the point, but the point is to say, if you are going to be unhappy and it is going to go against your conscience to believe the things that our church believes, then it would just be wise for you to either not join or, and then in the long run, to find some place that more fits your, your convictions. Um, so... We say that with all of uh, you had for saying about the SBC allocated funds to seminaries. Yes. So Mole always talks about how someone is getting from that's is it from the SBC? Is it from students? Is it from I mean, Bo- both? Both. And, both. and and a third one being donors. Um, so Are all, Southern Baptist seminaries that way? Yes. Yeah. So every Southern there is a there is essentially a larger amount of money called the the cooperative program. Okay. And it is the you know, it's more than this, but you can think of it as the bank account that all the money goes into and then is distributed to the entities. Um and that is at least partially seen over by the executive board and, and things like that. And so the seminaries get a certain amount of money. From, from the cooperative program, they have a certain amount of money that is probably part of their endowment, which means the, the money that has been given to that institution over generations, uh, and that they have, you know, earning interest and things like that. And then obviously they have their regular tuition and fees and things like that that go into their operating expense too. So. So. I, I was able to get Grant help them, mm-hmm. but like Southern doesn't do that. Yeah, no. So, what's the so the idea would be to say the Southern Baptist Convention will not take money from the government. They'll take money from their own entities, um, the cooperative program. Um, they'll take money from donors who who basically because donors don't have any say so about the money, right? At least they don't, at least the, you know, once the deal is made, they may have something where they say, we want this money to go to a certain kind of area of ministry. But after that, the school can use it as they they see fit. The problem with federal dollars, whether it's grant money or scholarships or, you know, federally backed um, loans, is that oftentimes the government can come in and say, you are only allowed to have these loans if you abide by other things. My- At Spurgeon? Yeah. Yeah, but Spurgeon's not Southern Baptist. It's not, it's not one of the official entities. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there, and there probably are, I'm not sure how, um, again, it probably depends on the, so, uh, there are probably different kinds of money and different kinds of sources. They're Tennessee Baptist, yeah. So um, so the difference would be, um, so for example, there's probably some kinds of monies that come from the outside where essentially they're open-ended and there's no strings. And so the, the school, I, I don't know, you'd have to go in and look at the different things, whether the school would accept that kind of money. I mean, obviously, like if somebody personal individual writes a check and says, I want you to put this in your scholarship fund. Like they'll just take it. Um, But that's because there's not the regulations that come along with the process. And there may be some kinds of, uh, um, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not knowledgeable on whether or not there are kinds of money that come from the government that are completely un- no strings attached. Yeah. 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 And obviously a lot of that, some of that has to do too with the idea of, um, you know, sometimes it is a case where those grants are coming to you and then you are now the person giving it to the institution. And so it may be a thing like that where essentially the the, the school is not responsible in any way or connected in any way. There's no tight strings there. You are. And so if you want to take your money that the government has given you and then do something with it, there's a difference there. So, now, again, I'm not an expert on any of these things. So, but, yeah. Are there any undergraduate SBC schools? Like I, I, I don't think there are any undergraduate SBC schools at all except for the ones that are connected to the seminaries. So most most Baptist undergraduate institutions are connected to state conventions. So there's no Baptist universities. Right. Yeah. Now obviously there there are starting to be in a sense because the undergrad undergrad programs at seminaries, um, which is a relatively you know, there there's more of those happening and and those are gaining steam. Um I think basically Boyce was just formed in the late nineties, I think. So um so the school's, you know, going on 175 years old, um, but, but, uh, who? Oh, is that her sister? Her sister the oh, no, I saw on Facebook. Yes. Oh, yes, yeah, she did. Yeah. Right. sister.